Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Kunst. It is Wednesday, September 1st. Happy September. Happy new month, as they say in Greece. And it is really as happy as it's going to get on the show because today is not a great day in the news. Not a great day at all. Of course, so many of us woke up this morning to find out that Texas, Texas now, (laughs) seems to have some sort of loophole uh, away from the law of the land, which is, of course, Roe v. Wade. Texas has navigated, as have many other states in the last few years, has navigated the law to claim that a woman who is pregnant six weeks, uh, they state that a heartbeat can be detected. Now, the premise right there is controversial in itself. That is something that is not unanimous. All doctors are not on the same page about. In fact, most doctors, I think, would be skeptical about, but it is the basis for the Supreme Court's decision, the law of the land, therefore granting banning of abortions at six weeks pregnant. Most women, let's just be very clear, don't even know they're pregnant until they're about four weeks because the date of your pregnancy is based on the first day of your last period, not on the day that you became pregnant pregnant. So for instance, if you get pregnant in the middle of your cycle, two weeks in, but you find out when you don't get your next period, you are four, sometimes five. And in some cases, even six weeks pregnant because people have, you know, irregular cycles. So you may not even have the ability to understand if you are pregnant. This is the most restrictive law in the land. It is Embarrassing that the United States of America has allowed itself to be controlled by a minority, extreme, right-wing, fundamentalist group of people. It is embarrassing that we claim to be this country that advocates for justice globally, women's rights globally, racial justice that we have open arms, that we're humanitarian, that we are the bastions of democracy, and yet we allow our democracy to be completely controlled by a very, very, very well-funded radical right-wing group of terrorists. Yes, we should expand the court. Yes, our court, for our lifetimes at least, is going to be fairly conservative even if we somehow figure out the electoral game, even if demographics move in our favor, we still have a Supreme Court that is conservative. Now, the internet went crazy today, blaming Bernie voters for not, I mean, just the same old, same old uh, arguments from 2015 and 16. People need an outlet, especially people who've attached their identities to causes, causes that sometimes go up against other people. But this isn't tribal. This is about being strategic. If you are an advocate 
for women's rights. If you are a feminist, if you are a feminist who believes that we should be fighting for reproductive justice beyond Roe v. Wade, if you truly have made your identity about this, if you have built your platform about these issues, if you've written books on this, if you have New York Times columns or Nation columns, or you name the publication, and this is your brand, then why do you stop the second it gets to class? Because the majority of women in this country that are getting abortions are getting it because of economic reasons. Let me tell you, a rich white lady probably can afford a plane ticket to New York State to get an abortion, maybe if they are able to, if it's not some sort of medical emergency, of course. Most women decide to have abortions because of economic reasons, myself included, at six weeks. So if you are a feminist sitting here using your platform right now, criticizing voters based on something that has been already fact-checked about whether or not People turned out and voted for Hillary, and if only Hillary had won, of course, if only Hillary had won, but you know what else would have helped? If Hillary Clinton talked about class, if Hillary Clinton was able to invest her record number of resources in that election in states like Wisconsin, if Hillary Clinton understood that the way to mobilize voters and get them excited against a a populist right-wing extremist, a pseudo-populist, I should say, was to build your own populist movement. You know, it's called politics. It's called electioning, electioneering. It's called organizing. I voted for Hillary Clinton in the general election. I advocated for voting for Hillary Clinton in the general election. And most Bernie Sanders voters voted for Hillary Clinton in the general election. This had nothing to do with third parties. This had nothing to do with any Let's settle that. That is a distraction. And that is a group of people who are angry and want to channel their anger in a direction outside of strategy. So let's talk about strategy. I feel like a broken record at this point. And frankly, I'm so sick and tired of saying this over and over because it's not my identity. It's not what I want my brand to be. But I will say it again because we've learned no lessons in five years. We've learned no lessons after two years of my running around the country with other well-meaning Democrats to try to reform the party. Because you know what? The Democratic Party has an addiction to their consultants. Their consultants sit in the Democratic Party. Their consultants are voting on the rules of the Democratic Party. Their consultants being appointed by the chair, not elected, are sitting on rules committees that determine the budget. And the majority of the budget still does not go to state parties. Why does that matter? Well, you look at Texas right now. That's why that matters. When you have a state that is on the brink of a Democratic majority, on the brink It might help to, you know, maybe invest in that state, pour money into the party to recruit another generation, to train people on the ground, to do outreach, to do messaging, to talk about how abortion rights are at risk of being lost. You know, maybe before the ruling, maybe that'll mobilize people to make phone calls all day long and recruit their neighbors and have conversations and do outreach. That is what a vibrant party does. And I don't want to hear any excuses because you got the money. You have raised more money than ever. And yet, there are still no reforms. There's still little transparency. 
Because as soon as we presented those reforms, they were stricken away because the people who had oversight in the Democratic Party were appointed consultants, something we were trying to get rid of. There's no democracy. It's a pseudo-democracy. If everything at the end of the day is kabuki theater, and the kabuki theater hands a set of reforms to the men behind the curtain who are making money off of the current system, that's not democracy. That's unethical. And what did I say before? Oh, it's fucking corrupt, if you saw that video. And also in that video, I talked about how what if you were a woman in Arizona who has an ectopic pregnancy and you have to rush, rush to get an abortion, and yet you can't do it in your state, and you have to go to the next state over, New Mexico. Thank God for New Mexico for at least having some semblance of a Democratic Party there. But it should not be up to the states. It should be up to the National Party. That is their job. That is what they used to do. That is what they used to do when they believed in unions, when they believed in organizing, when they believed in taking on the right wing, just not at the national level. All that is being done is these national fights. Every time there's outrage like this, there's an opportunity to raise money on email. For another nonprofit or or political organization to pop up to address that issue. You know what addresses that issue? If 24-7 we're organizing in every single community in this country. Because you know what else is popular? What the Democratic Party actually stands for. What progressives stand for. You don't want the progressives to stay at home. Then you know what? Maybe you should talk to them. Maybe you should organize. You don't want working people to stay at home. Then maybe you should organize and talk to them. Not everybody's privileged to read your New York Times column every Sunday. This is about organizing and connecting with people because when we're not organizing, the right-wing fascists are literally taking over our government. How dare us? How dare us? Spend the last two weeks in the media talking about women's rights in Afghanistan when in our own country, Women's rights are being assaulted every single day. We can chew gum and walk. We can do both. And I urge us to do both. But as long as the Democratic Party is non-operational and MIA, just expect more and more of this to happen. They are they're gerrymandering. They have gerrymandered. They're taking on voting, voting rights, as we know. Civil rights. Critical race theory, which we're going to talk about on the show today. They're gutting education budgets. They're handing out payouts to oil companies. They're rewriting history books to not acknowledge climate and science. You know, science is something that's kind of a big problem right now. People don't seem to understand it. There's this group of people who are literally holding up civilization because they think that taking a horse pill protects them rather than listening to actual scientists. This is what happens when you are non-operational as a party. You have the majority. You have the money. You have no excuse. Is that consultant's sixth home in the Hamptons or Barbados or wherever they're hiding their money, is that worth it? Rome is burning. Rome is melting. Rome is already in ashes. Jamie Harrison, I know you know what's going on. I've talked to you before. Jamie Harrison, you think this conversation's going away. It's not. This isn't just about SCOTUS. This isn't just about winning presidential elections. 
This is about actually having operations as a Democratic Party in a country that is majority Democrats. If you can't mobilize your own people, how are you going to expand your base? We have the base. We have the money. We don't have the laws because we didn't show up to the legislature. Literally, right now, the Republicans in Congress are taking advantage of vacation and recess and Democrats being gone by throwing an onslaught of attacks against Joe Biden on his his rollout in Afghanistan. They're in Washington using that opportunity, that vacuum as an opportunity to launch their campaign against Democrats so that they can win back Congress and they, they can win back the Senate. They've got the legislatures, as we see. They've got, they've got the Supreme Court. They're pretty close to getting Congress, and they're pretty close to getting the Senate, and they might as well get the presidency. How does that happen in a country that somehow understands human rights more than any other country? How does that happen in a country that for 40 years had a Democratic majority in Congress? How does that happen in a country where unions originated? How does that happen in a country where you had a civil rights movement, where you have free speech? How does that happen? How does that happen when you have more people who are activated after the George Floyd protests, the Breonna Taylor protests, and the Women's March, the largest demonstrations in history? How does that happen? We have no opposition party. That's how that happens. That is how that happens. Instead of saying, where do I put my money? Because I got a lot of these messages. Where do I put my money instead of the Democrats? I urge you to demand that the Democrats make their their budget transparent and get rid of uh, unelected appointed members. Because it's not actually the DNC. It's not actually the, the, the elected members that are doing this. It's the appointed members. I want to make this very clear. It's not some sort of uh, questionable entity. This is an entity that has a lot of members who want these reforms, who believe in these reforms. There are state party chairs who've been crying out for money and they get scraps. They get grants. Oh, here, you get $20,000 to rebuild your party. Show me, show me the receipts. Man and audit. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, very exciting. Uh, this, speaking of <laughs> the attacks by the Republicans, we have Anthony Conrad on, who is going to be talking about the Republicans' war on critical race theory and how they're trying to reinvent history and how our education system has always been racist and what we need to do about it. And then later we have Maximilian Alvarez on, uh, who's going to talk about how COVID, shocker, shocker, breaking news, has been very bad for the working class. And then after that, we have Jordan Zacharin and Natalie Schur. They're on to talk about all the news of today, and there is a lot. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We're excited to have Anthony Conrad on for the first time. Anthony is a writer and educator based in New York, uh, currently working on his debut novel, Speak Blackness, and his writing has appeared in many places, including Mother Jones, The Nation, Huffington Post, and The New Republic, where he has a piece out right now titled American Education is Founded on White Race Theory. Oh my God, paging Tucker Carlson. Have, <laughs> have you gotten any uh, personal text messages from him challenging this? Because he loves to text people we've seen. No, luckily uh, I'm not. I'm not on his radar yet, so I haven't received any uh, text messages from him. 
Oh, so should we pitch you to go on his show to debate him? Because that would be real fun. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the day. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, I don't think our audience is going to be too surprised that that uh, our education system is founded on on with whether it's a white centered, uh, you know, education premise or blind spots all over the place, because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so much of our education policy has been designed by white men, but, Mm -hmm. you know, you say white race theory. So how would you define that? So that's an interesting question. So, um, in terms of white race theory, what I was really talking about was, um, in response to the critical race theory backlash, it's people are kind of forgetting, um, or at least pretending that the educational system wasn't founded on the premise that um, being white was better than being black. And embedded in that were a lot of racist uh, thoughts and feelings toward toward black people. And so I was really trying to say with, with, with the whole piece and the kind of what the title hints at is that the system was created with a, a white centric view of everything. And so that's kind of the, the, the roots of the, the structure of the system. Okay. So white centered view of everything, centric view of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, when, like, when you say like our, our, it was created then what, when is the creation? Like when did our modern education system sort of come, when did it go from being like a schoolhouse down the road that like mm-hmm. the local mama <laughs> right, right. The kids at to being like an right. actual, uh, design system. So, so it's, it's kind of interesting in the sense that, um, before the the committee of 10 in 1892 you had this situation like going back to um the the 1700s 1800s early 1800s where um school education was really handled at like the state level right and so you had certain you you might have a college or a high school in one place and that high school and college doesn't know what this other high school is doing or this other college is, is doing and so there were situations where um, in a in a high school's graduating class, you might have like twenty different students trying to uh, prepare for twenty completely different college entrance requirements. So everything was kind of in in chaos. So you might have to know some Latin over here. You might need to know geometry for this school, but this other school requires vulgar math or something like that. Um, and, and when you have like a population, um, increase and people moving from high school to college, there needed to be a system, um, for organization. And so in 1892, um, you had the, the first, uh, creation or attempt to create a, um, the, a national sort of curriculum for, for college entrance, um, and, and trying to figure out, okay, what are the subjects that are taught within high schools that are kind of common? And so I would say um, the, the, the reports that the Committee of Ten um, delivered uh, after their, their meeting was really kind of the, form, the, the solidifying the, the structure at the beginning of the structure that we have now. And the Committee of Ten were white men? Yes. And how are they like found, like who found them? Why, why them? So it's, it's, it's interesting. (laughs) They were, um, just kind of men that were just 
but like known, you know, not that they, they didn't have, you know, like these venerated positions like president of, of Columbia or Harvard or something like that, you know, the, the commissioner for education. Um, but it, 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 it wasn't as if, you know, they were like, all right, guys, we need a committee. Of, we need to get like 10 guys together and we need to make it as diverse as possible. It wasn't so, so it was. They don't even uh, do that now. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so it was kind of just picked off of, um, you know, venerated titles, positions, duties, um, that, that sort of thing. Okay. So prior to that, I mean, it's interesting because you say like there was no uniformity. There was no, um, mm-hmm. if, if there were 20 kids in a class, they were expected to have 20 different paths to go to college, but that's right. assuming that those 20 people in the class are even have access to college. I mean, right. how, just from right. like the right. basic right. free education, like who was getting a free education? Right. So, um, Education, depending on what what state you were in, you might have had a different experience. Um, However, to to your point, the committee of 10, that report, they that's where um, high school as the the tool to prepare students for college. It really that's where that idea came about. And so after. Um, like in the report, they basically stayed, basically said, well, the purpose of high school is college prep. So before that, you, that, that wasn't, um, um, as much of a, as much of a thing, you know, like obviously if you were, if you were white and you were male and you're wealthy, um, you were more than likely to have a, a college track. Right. But if, uh, if you were not that, then it might be less likely. And after the, the report of the committee of 10, you, you had for the, um, really the first time, like a, a solidifying of the idea that the purpose of high school is college prep. Okay. So where does the race side come in? Like how, um, when the committee of 10 came together and said, all right, these are the, mm-hmm. this is the basis of what every student who goes to one of our, the colleges, uh, I assume that these were all Ivy league schools or in that little mm-hmm. circuit of private schools. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what they need to know. And, 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 and by the way, like for folks, we not know, I think schools still have this system, like where it's been expanded, but like there are fundamentals that they kind of all agree. Like, you know, you have to read this, this type of literature, Mm -hmm. you have to take this type of, you know, math, you have to take this many classes in the language. Um, And I'm sure it's evolved a little bit, but (laughs) probably not perfect. Um, So, so, so where did the racial aspect come in? Like, or the, was there an actual white agenda or was it, like just blinders because they were all white? I think it was a little bit of both. So um, so let's say um, if, if a person wanted to have like good faith, right? That these guys were just blind. That doesn't mean that the racism was not explicit. That makes sense. And so whenever you're creating a, a structure or a system and you're not purposefully um, involving other cultures or perspectives, or if you're creating the system, and let's say you say something like, wow, uh, Anglo-Saxon culture is where everybody else gets their culture, and they're the main thought of, of, of history. And every student or the purpose of the curriculum should really be to um, get people to be 
uh, Anglo-Saxons. Well, right there, you may not be saying, well, like, I really hate Black people. I hate their culture. They have no culture. They you just freed them. They know nothing. So let's ignore them. You don't have to say it for that to, to be the implied result, right? Or even the result in itself. So when you read the report, they don't say anything that's like that. They don't say like, God, I hate Black people or something. You know, it's it's not quite like that. But what they what they do say um, in the report is, 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 is you can read this um, veneration of, like, of, of Anglo-Saxon culture. And so that is very much present. So they don't necessarily say white, but they refer to it as like, you know, being Anglo-Saxon. But in their in, um, in writings that members of the committee attended, it, they, they engage in blatant like racism. Right. So um, uh, between the members, you mean, of the committee? Oh, even just um, personal writings. Uh, right, right, right. Exactly. In their own writings, uh, they, they're pretty, they said some pretty blatant, uh, like racist things. Uh, so, for example, that um, black people, the slavery benefited black people in the sense that they were able to learn um, Anglo-Saxon culture, or they were able to learn um, white culture from slavery. And, so and many things there. there. Right, <laughs> right, right. Exactly, exactly. And so it's really that that sort of thing that that was was present. Um, I, I forgive me because I don't know this, but but were black people allowed to go to these colleges then, or like was there uh, women weren't until a certain right. point? I I mean, were right. of course Frederick Douglass was well educated. I mean, there are a lot of, of, of right. iconic, right. but was it just black colleges, or was it were they allowed to go to a Columbia or or a Yale oh, at that time? I I couldn't I couldn't tell you uh, when Yale or Columbia. Um, begin to um admit black people but to really right it and when you're thinking about a structure it's it's you're yeah. not really um and you're thinking about racism the the individual bodies in a place the individual black bodies in a place isn't necessary doesn't make a thing sort of like less racist or it's not right, a it, right and i know that you're not implying that but like i i can see people going oh wait a minute but they were black people at, at this place. So that it couldn't have been as racist, but you're, you're talking about a structure that was designed to make people patriots and to make them have like a, an Anglo, Anglo-Saxon consciousness, right? And so that right there, no matter if there are 10 black kids in that mm. kind of classroom. In fact, if that's the if that's the purpose of the education, you can have a school, a, a classroom, just, just all black people, and you, you still are going to get that that kind of um, racism, racist instruction. And so um, I think when it comes to education, we really have to think structure, structurally, right? So, so what, so if you're saying, okay, um, we need to create standards for history. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or social studies. Well, you have to, if we were going to, let's say, redesign it, let's say that, the, you know, Joe Biden says, you know, what? we're going to revisit this committee of 10 thing and we're going to redo everything. You know, you might ask a different set of questions um, in, in 2021 than they asked in 1892 to design that system. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of my, my, my question is how mm -hmm. was this just to make sure that 
a, a, a majority or almost totally white male mm-hmm. group of people being educated were completely oblivious to the actual history? Or was it also to, to, to do so with people of color that were going to, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter either way. It was the structural, right, right. you know, origins of this all. I mean, we see how it got mm-hmm. to where we are now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think how, like, how much this was so much, like, was there even a conversation about having, I mean, was this just like sort of put in their faces or was there a conversation like at the time? Was there controversy? Was, were there people being educated mm-hmm. saying, why are we only having white men dictate? Like, was there a critical race theory see, conversation? <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. You know what? So I would, I might phrase it like this. There were dissenting opinions, like in the report. Right. And there's even, um, an, essay um in the report it's it's called oh oh gosh i'm blanking on the the name but it it's basically um talking about and in, instructing um former slaves and i i cannot think of the the name of it it's escaping me i'll it, it'll come to me later on but in the essay and, and it's and so when you read it, it it there are parts of it that feel very liberal so this is a white man who definitely had some racist views, but said things like, well, you know, Black teachers should teach Black students because the most important part of that relationship is love and understanding. And a white person can't love and understand a Black pupil. But then he flips it and goes, but then that, but Black teachers shouldn't teach white kids. You know, like he, that's kind of the implication. And so you have that kind of, um, you had that kind of dissenting opinion Um and also at the same time, Tuskegee is um, being is being developed. And so when you um, and, and so when you look at the 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 kind of thought and process that um, people went about when uh, thinking about how to create black schools, it was just it's it was different. Um, and so. There, there was a critical race theory kind of controversy, but it just didn't have that that name, of course. Um, what seems so interesting to me now is like how these structural issues didn't seem to be ever addressed. It's like they were put in system, and then no one. It wasn't like you know, like the Constitution. We're always debating, right? <laughs> you know, it's 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 a living, breathing um, document, supposedly. Uh, <laughs> Great day to talk about that, but yeah, but like something like this, it just seems like I don't know. Maybe forty years in, we'd have a bigger conversation about. Oh wait, the, the, it, it, history. Like, why are we not discussing slavery in a deeper way? Why are we not talking about? Right. Uh, I mean, especially because history books in particular are constantly being updated. Right. 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 Has like other than right now, I mean, have we had these moments, at least in the education space, not necessarily in the national dialogue, but in the education space about going back and just scrapping everything? I mean, the way that like, I don't know, Christians do in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, Yes and and no. I, I feel like traditionally it's always been pushed back from from black people saying we want to be included in this in the structure and having essentially um, to to prove that you know we have a we have a place right so for example um, 
we had uh, Carter G. Woodson, Negro History Week, and then you have the 60s, African American Studies, Black Studies programs. And all of that was um, really like in in protest to the the current structure. But um, I think in terms of just saying, hey, let's scrap everything. Um, we kind of haven't really, we've had it in terms of like, should we have standard, uh, high stakes standardized testing? Right. And, um, but I don't think as a, as a country, we've really sat back and said, do we really need this test? I mean, we ha- we just had to think about it, right. Because of the pandemic, um, which unfortunately we haven't really ha- taken a moment to like reflect like, oh, well, why do we have an SAT? Where does that come from? Oh, College Board. Oh, they were on the Committee of Ten. Oh, that's weird. In their first writings about like testing, they really they said the same thing about testing that we are actually saying today. Um, and so we've never really kind of looked at it because a lot of these things are money making ventures, right? So high stakes testing like generates a, a lot of a lot of money, but does that necessarily um, does an SAT score necessarily determine what a kid's going to? to be? Does it measure their potential? Like, no, of course not. Like, you know, there are lots of people who don't do well at SAT in, in the SAT or even in college and then become highly successful. Um, and so I think the, the hard part is um, on the left hand side, on the left, you, you have liberals who value um, enlightenment and education and um, prestige in colleges like, you know, um, and it's it's hard for those liberals to let that go. And then you have conservatives that um, <laughs> are okay with dividing uh, society into the haves and have nots and the nos and no nots. And so they're okay with the SAT kind of acting as this um, discriminatory um, filter. Um, on that note, uh, this the, the, this obsession by the right wing right now with critical race mm-hmm. theory. I, I find it fascinating that it's coming at this moment. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's something obviously they've been, been, they've been fighting over for a while, but right. but like during the pandemic, it just seems like it's it's emerged in the last four or five months as, as the, mm-hmm. the, the, the major crisis. If, you, if you're watching Fox News or any of the right wing places, it is the major crisis in America. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> meanwhile, also happening while kids have been at home. So, you know, where where do you think this stems from? Why, why now is this just like an opportunity to tap into people's insecurities and blame another? Um, what do you think? So the Republicans for as much as I disagree with their entire platform, and I will go to my grave saying their party platform is lit like the the same the platform like white supremacy like literally if you were to go to like a Klu Klux Klan website and like take it and to compare it to the Republican platform it would be kind of similar um they know how to organize they the, the Republican party th- their marketing and their organization is is on point but like I hate it I disagree with it but damn, they know how to do it. And um, they were they were really, really clever in taking advantage of the narrative that was both on the left and the right of the the, the rioting and the looting of the dur- during the George Floyd protests and attaching that to Black Lives Matter and then being able 
to and then and then knowing that wow, Americans are really buying all of this um, nonfiction literature on anti-racism and white fragility and and the Black experience. And we can't compete with that in this moment because this Black man was killed so egregiously and so publicly. We can't really say anything. But what we can do is uh, demonize the literature by attaching it to this this thing called critical race theory. And we're going to um, conflate re- some like bad teaching practices with critical race theory and then um, use children as like the fear mongering uh, stimulus. And so I just think it was a, a just a, a well uh, implemented strategy. Like it, it just, it, I just think it's it's really to appeal to the base and to get people who um, may have been on the fence about uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, George Floyd, the protests, all those things. It was a way to say um, to get the people who go, OK, racism is bad, but I'm not racist and, and, and to really appeal to that that crowd. Right. That's 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 a very well said at the beginning of the show. We we're talking about how, you know this exactly Republicans are so well organized at a time when we should be winning everywhere, everywhere. We have the numbers, mm-hmm. we have the diversity, mm-hmm. we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mobilization obviously. And yet, <laughs> yeah, you know, things like what happened in Texas could happen overnight. And, uh, and of course, you know, we see civil rights being wrecked. There's a wrecking ball being taken to civil rights, um, because they're organized. So well said, Anthony. Exactly. Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just saying thank you. Thank you for for saying that. I mean, like I I taught in middle school at a a liberal charter school um, in San Diego. And I I can tell you that not one time did critical race theory ever come up. Like it's, I'm shocked it's, that at a charter right. school that would never come up. Right, right. It like shocked. never, never, never came up. It's like yeah. not a thing. It's completely, completely um, made up and, and fabricated. And so, um, yeah, they're, Republicans are just good at organizing and messaging. I mean, if Democrats were smart, they'd be like, thank you so much. We're now going to actually shove it down your throats in states that you're actually going to lose it. And then you can have a real conversation about it. You know, exactly. You got to play rough. It, Take, take ownership of it. Right, exactly. But the, the problem is the, the Democrats are trying to do this thing where they don't want to take um, an affirmative position on something. So the Democrats' best strategy is to always go, um, I'm not, we are not Republicans. And in the ways that we are, we're not as Republican as the Republicans. And so- and, and at some point, like they're going to realize, I, I think, and it, I think it's going to be bad that um, not being Republican is not really a selling point. And and at some point in time, like you're you're not going to be able to throw black people at voters. You're not going to be able to throw women at voters and be like, look at this shiny um, social progress. Uh, mantle that I had in front of you, vote like vote for us. It's 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 not gonna gonna work. Unfortunately, Kamala Harris is like an exa- a great example of that. She's so like in the primaries, nobody really um, was was into her, and then all of a sudden she became this venerated like figure, mm-hmm. and people are making these like weird posters, like all these things, and then now like check out the the approval rating. Like I, I have nothing against her, but um, it's more against like 
the the structure of, of power and and then the messaging it's like yeah. you know if you believe black lives matter then be for universal health care be for universal child care and right. and in college and all these things but then they're embedded in the same structure of the same values as republicans so they don't know how to even you know they just don't know how to take affirmative positions because they're so afraid of give, giving a message that might turn away some of the you know, more conservative voters on the, on the left. You know, it um, helped if, a, if they mobilized, you know, working class voters, then you wouldn't have to have that exchange. Uh, but that right. would mean surrendering their donations. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anthony, exactly. thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the great piece. And uh, let us know when your, your, your book is out. We'd love to talk about it. Oh, thank you. Will do. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate Thanks. it. Take care. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Doom and gloom. That's what you're here for, and you will get it. <laughs> Maximilian Alvarez is the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and the host of the Working People podcast. Uh, there is a piece out in, in these times right now that he has written titled, The Pandemic Made the Divide Between the Ruling and Working Class Clearer Than Ever. It's a conversation with world-renowned economist, Richard D. Wolf, friend of the show. Thank you so much, Maximilian, for joining us. Um, this is like the most amazing breaking news I've heard all year, <laughs> that this divide is worsened. Um, it's pretty, it was pretty bad before. I mean, I remember two years ago, I was running for, for, for office in New York. And like my first line of every speech was New York City has, has the worst in, income inequality than anywhere else in the country, anywhere in history. And what's being done? And like post COVID, how do you even gauge that? We're, we're, do we have the metrics? Like, how bad is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad. There, there definitely are, you know, a lot of metrics that that folks can look to. Um, but I think where I would start, and where Professor Wolf and I kind of started in that conversation that we recorded, is that in a lot of ways, like we're all feeling it, right? You know, you, you, you know it in your bones, right? And you feel it in your day-to-day -day life, right? And I think that the pandemic actually provided kind of a, a horrifying uh, laboratory, right? Or uh, uh, that showed us all kind of um, who the decision makers are and who they are definitely not, right? Because even right now, um, you know, for instance, you know, school year is starting up again, at the moment when COVID cases, new COVID cases are at their highest point um, that they've been in since their peak in January of early this year, um, for a number of reasons, with a lot of folks un still unvaccinated, including 50 million kids under the age of 12. Um, but also, you know, there's the, the mask and vaccine mandates have been kind of swept into uh, the kind of hopeless gyre of uh, the culture wars. Um, and so that's not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. But, you know, schools are reopening right at this kind of moment when also the Delta variant is kind of running amok. And situations like these really, I think, highlight right what that divide sort of looks like. Right, because so many teachers, staff are kind of being pushed to go back to in-person learning um, with a bunch of unvaccinated kids. Um, there are a lot of kind of policies there that they have to abide by that don't necessarily ensure their safety. 
And I think that, you know, in talking to a lot of workers myself this week on Working People, I actually have an episode with a teacher in South Carolina who talks about this kind of stuff. It's very clear um, who's making the decisions and who is just kind of uh, being pushed into the firing line. Right. And that has been made clear throughout the pandemic, whether it's people pleading to um, kind of extend the eviction moratorium, whether it's people desperately needing uh, extended unemployment benefits to stay home so that they don't have to risk their lives uh, and their families' lives before they were able to get vaccinated and all that stuff, right? There were there have been so many decisions made at high levels um, that not only are being made with very little kind of input from regular working people, but that have also sort of demonstrated like you know, whose priorities um, or whose needs are being prioritized uh, in the kind of social strategy for dealing with something like the COVID-19 pandemic. Just like we saw in the recession over 10 years ago, it was the government made very clear, right, whose needs it was prioritizing uh, in terms of the economic, quote unquote, recovery, right? It was not people like my family uh, who lost everything in the recession, right? It was, you know, the the banks and economic actors around the world who precipitated the kind of collapse of the economy itself. So you take all that together, right? You take that sort of horrifying laboratory that the COVID-19 pandemic has provided, um, and you take the sort of decision makers who have really faced no real accountability for being wrong a lot of the time or for um, really flouting the needs of working people, many of whom have died, right? Let's not forget that, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers have died because of these decisions, because of the inaction, because of the lax support um, that people need. And so this is kind of the, the baseline for the discussion that Professor Wolf and I had. And I think that as he does so brilliantly, right, he really sort of fleshed that out to give a larger economic picture, right, to complement that, to show that, in fact, you know, this is consistent with the sort of trends in American history, whereby working people have been um, collectively and individually disempowered for decades, whether that's the smashing of the labor movement, whether that is real wages essentially remaining stagnant for decades, right, as um, the, the minimum wage kind of hasn't risen in the longest period uh, in American history. Meanwhile, cost of living goes up every year. Um, so in fact, workers have been kept in this sort of like increasingly precarious position with fewer resources and, and less ability to sort of assert their needs in the kind of priority list of society. And, and all of this has really come to a head in the pandemic and revealed to us like that we are all just at the whims of, you know, a capitalist economy that puts a premium on profit over life, over freedom, over everything else. It's interesting that you had this conversation with the teacher because um, it's been hard for, I think, a lot of folks. I think, I think there's been plenty of folks on, on the left included who've been struggling with, you know, whether or not kids should go back to school, how they should go back to school. I think right now folks are really apprehensive because of the Delta variant, because of uh, how the Delta variant is spreading with children um, and just the the vac the uh, mask mandates that are are being fought in some states putting you know so many people including teachers and their families at risk. Um, with that being said, I can't help but just sit there and say to myself, like, how is the teachers union allow allowing this? I mean, their their duty 
first and foremost is to protect their teachers and the livelihoods of their teachers, um, the financial livelihoods of their teachers, and understanding that teachers, you know, teachers I've spoken to have been very frustrated with this process being able, you know, teaching over Zoom. Um, students, especially as they get, you know, into high school, uh, have not been showing up to class at the rates that are, are needed. It's been very, very, very difficult. And, you know, that could be for many reasons, like working at home with parents. And um, it's been very hard on parents. But ultimately, the only thing I can think of at this point that really would allow this forced, I mean, it's really, it's happening in New York City where polls say that folks don't want their, their, their kids to go back to school and put them at risk. And that's with a, a city that is very vaccinated. Like the rates are very, very high. The only thing I think I think of is capital wants parents to go back to work. And that's really what it is. It's like more people are going back to work. More people are vaccinated. Not everybody, clearly. More people are vaccinated. And it becomes a lot more difficult when you got to maintain your family life and take care of your kids and make sure they're sitting in front of that Zoom, you know, uh, all day long. It's the only thing I can think of is that at the end of the day, what's dictating this is the economy, capital. Am I, am, am I wrong? No, I, mean, I think that's a, a brilliantly made point. And it's important for folks to kind of see how those two issues are interconnected, because the sooner that you start thinking in that vein, the sooner that, um, you know, the hellscape that is the United States is going to start making a lot more sense to you. Right. And it's because of what you just said. Right. And this is something that teachers um, and, and a number of the unions um, have also said in other contexts. Right. They've said that, like, in a lot of ways, we are the backbone of the economy um, because we are the primary source of childcare in this country, right? Like you said, you know, uh, working parents drop their kids off at school, then they go to work and that keeps the kind of economy going. Um, and in fact, this has been used um, by teachers, right, to assert, you know, their own labor needs by saying, like, look, the economy doesn't function without us. So this is why, you know, like we need to have the protections that we're asking for, have the pay that we're asking for, have the classroom conditions that we're demanding. Right. But um, I think that seeing it in this sort of larger context it also starts to kind of connect to the other things that we're seeing, like the fact that, uh, what, in, in four days, five days, right, um, pandemic-related unemployment benefits across the board are going to end. The Biden administration has kind of kicked the can down to states saying, oh, you guys need to use the additional COVID funds you got uh, to extend these unemployment benefits. And basically every state is like, yeah, we're not going to do that, right? Because there is, again, uh, to go back to Professor Wolf, there is this order giving sort of apparatus that is ultimately there to serve the needs of capital. And that apparatus is um, kind of making all the moves that it wants to make uh, to push working people back into the meat grinder in order to kind of jumpstart the economy at ultimately, right, to provide the sort of profits that um, uh, businesses are looking for. And a lot of businesses right now are feeling like they were the victims of this pandemic, that they lost revenue, right, that they had to put up with like, uh, you know, additional uh, safety measures, uh, even if they did like a crap job at, at implementing them, right? Businesses and, and, and the owning class right now are coming 
are coming to the table saying like, you know, we are the aggrieved party here and the rest of you lazy pieces of crap need to uh, get off your butts. Uh, we're cutting off your unemployment benefits, uh, even though cases, like we said, uh, new COVID cases are the highest they've been since their height in the pandemic in, Janu in January. We're acting as if uh, the pandemic itself is over and we're pushing people back into the firing line and essentially saying like, there's no safety net left. Like, so it's either risk your life or um, at work or starve at home. It, it's okay. So this is, this makes me think of what's going on with the eviction moratorium, right? Like um, I, 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 the Republicans are so brilliant. Capital is so brilliant at getting us to move into their narrative that we're not talking about cancel rent anymore. We're talking about extending the eviction moratorium to the point where, of course, progressive members of Congress, some couple, handful, camped out on Capitol Hill to make this point. But let's keep in mind here, eviction moratorium or not, if that moratorium ends, you're going to have massive evictions across the country, which is going to create a homeless population that I don't think, like we're already, we already have a bad one, uh, an unhoused situation in which the president, he, he can't have, you know, Hoovervilles. I mean, not to mention like what's happening with Afghanistan. This is just a gift to the Republicans if that's how they think, if that's what they're thinking of as power and, and staying in power. But aside from that, um, I was I was reading the paper yesterday and New York City is now the most expensive place in America to live. They have been pushing, they're extending the eviction moratorium again. The new governor, Kathy Hochul, is doing so. And all I'm thinking is, wait, wait, wait. And I'm reading that rent rates are back to pre-pandemic rates, which makes me think that this was the, 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 the design. I, I don't know what like financial model they're using, what crisis financial model they're using these developers are, but um, and, and these landlords, at least the big ones. But my thought is, they're just sitting here saying, let's just ride this wave as long as we can keep getting bailed out. People in New York will get back to work. A good chunk of them will. And then we'll evict whoever's left. And then we'll just up the to do exactly what we did last time, last time, which is rental rates are going to go up because business is going to exist in New York. And that's how this is going to work. It's not going to work in every single city in America, but it's just I couldn't understand why they couldn't just cancel rent, why they couldn't in New York, at least for four months, two months, one month. Just do it. And and no. if and, and you can qualify for a couple of months, but it is very, very hard to work that system. And guess what? The website doesn't work. Great. This is, it, it's like, I, I don't even know, like how bad does it need to get? Really? I mean, this, you're saying, you're talking about this, 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 this difference, this income inequality difference, but how bad? I mean, if, if people can't access credit, if they don't have a home, if they can't qualify for a rent because they have bad credit now, because they've been living off of credit cards over the last 16 months, because they lost their jobs, if they even had access to credit cards, where, where do we go from there? No one's getting bailed out. This is not 2008, 2009. This is far worse. Any answer? <laughs> <laughs> Did Richard Wolf have that answer to that? I mean, really, this is this is existential. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, I think that um, you know, the the important thing to you know for viewers to recognize, right, is that someone is getting bailed out here and it's just not us, right? I mean, um the the fact that we won't just ever consider at the highest levels of decision making kind of canceling rent or canceling 
student debt, right? That is just this in, this incredible burden that has um, crushed uh, multiple generations now, and that is that has limited the economic power of of you know huge swaths of the population. We somehow lack the will or the ability at um, the upper echelons of decision making to consider that these policies, these ways of running the economy, of the credit system, uh, this this social arrangement of society, we have the power to say, like, look, this was an experiment and it failed. Right. What has what has this kind of decades long policy right, of charging people exorbitant rates for uh, getting an education? Right. That didn't happen overnight. That happened decades over decades of um, defunding um, public funds for uh, higher education, um, but and replacing those costs um, with unforgivable debt that was pushed on to individual students and their families, and that essentially turned the government into a giant loan shark. That is not, you know, like there's nothing in nature that says that's the way higher education in this country has to be. It was a deliberate decision that this country made 40 years ago, and we've been going down that path, and we have seen the results of it. We have seen um, that, in fact, you know, like it has resulted in a massive kind of labor crisis within higher education uh, with the expansion of adjuncts and so on and so forth. It has resulted in um, like as I said, so many generations um, of students being kind of laden with debt that they're never going to be able to pay off, um, and but that's going to like make a crap ton of money for the the people kind of offering that money. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. We can say like, look, we have actually squandered the social potential of generations by implementing this failed policy that benefits a few people at the collective expense of the many. And so, in fact, it is time, you know, President Joe Biden is out there saying that the war in Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan He's justifying it by saying, like, it's important for us to recognize that we made a mistake and undo it. OK, great. Then undo the all the other ones that we're currently living right. with. Undo right. the kind of Reaganomic hellscape that that, you know, both parties have bought into for the past generation. Right. Because what it has resulted in is, you know, an explosion in wealth and power for the one percent. Uh, it has resulted in the vast many of us having lower, you know, or lower real wages or, or suppressed real wages. While, as you said, rents kind of go up. We've been living through kind of an inflation, um, you know, uh, uh, peak right now or spike right now. And Professor Richard Wolf in that interview that we did, you know, pointed out, he's like, you know, inflation is a form of class war, right? It is a way that the employers raise prices that the employees are ultimately going to have to pay um, in order to recoup costs for, you know, basically producing less stuff, right? It is the capitalist class. It is quite, quite literally the, the embodiment of the capitalist class taking us by our ankles and shaking us so that more change falls out of our pockets. I know I'm hope I'm not like kind of all over the place, but I I, the the thing that I'm really trying to kind of say is that um, there is no real kind of way out of this system within the confines that the system has set for us. Like you said, there is no way that people are going to be able to pay these exorbitant rents with the wages that we currently have and the inequality that we currently have and the debt that we currently have. There is no way out. 
um, within that system, unless you hit the lottery, right? That's basically it. And even that's not going to guarantee it for you. The way out is to re-examine the way that that system operates and to remove the boot from people's necks that um, isn't there, like I said, because of some uh, natural law that says that student debt is the only way to finance a college education, right? It is having the ability to stand up to the powerful decision makers in this society, as Richard Wolff says, uh, the the ruling class, um, the class, uh, the former class of um, the kings, um, you know, those we got over the society that had kings and lords and serfs and slaves, but we essentially kind of morph that structure uh, to adapt to a new kind of economic and political reality. So instead of kings, we have CEOs, right? Instead of serfs, we have the vast working class uh, whose lives and freedoms are dictated by the economic pressures that this system kind of pushes us into. So if we are going to actually find a way out of that, if we are, and it, it would be doing so for the benefit of the whole of society. Like imagine the spending potential, imagine the, the life potential that, you know, could be regained if student debt was eliminated, right? Imagine what it would mean to you as a working person if the minimum wage had kept up with inflation the way it was supposed to. That would be around like $24 an hour right now. Imagine if you were making $24 an hour instead of $7.25 an hour. What would that mean for you and your family, right? These are questions that the ruling class does not want us to ask, but they are questions that we should be asking um, because then we will realize all that has in fact been stolen from us over these decades. And, and not to mention, uh, we haven't even gotten to healthcare and so many other aspects, but I'll just add this one little thing as you're running down the list. Um, I am going under, I'm undergoing a medical procedure right now and I had to go get access to pharmaceuticals and I'm not in the country and I'm doing it here because it's cheaper than it is in the United States by tens of thousands of dollars. But the, the medicine, uh, I had to run from pharmacy to pharmacy to pharmacy be, to get pieces of the medicine because they ran out at one. And I said, what's going on? Well, they said, oh, production is down. Meanwhile, I tell my mother this, who's who's uh, has to take a certain thyroid medicine every, every month. And she said to me, so production was down because of the pandemic. Like they didn't have enough supply because of the pandemic. Simultaneously, my mother uh, has thyroid medication. And she said, they had to uh, pull back the thyroid medication because they take it from a pig's thyroid in Puerto Rico. And because of Hurricane Maria, 85% of the pigs on the island were killed. And that's where they developed the pharmaceuticals. So climate change is affecting production, which is increasing the, the, the prices of just our basic needs, our basic needs, not to mention the pandemic has done this. So if we're going to talk about supply chain, which you briefly mentioned with inflation, we also have to keep in mind that all of these things just get worse and worse and worse, the less we deal with them. So it's not just that income inequality is vast and they're making a ton of money is every single time they make money off of this bit of the economy, this bit of the economy, and there's a crisis and they make money off of those crises it exacerbates things so that the cost of those goods go up, not just because they're setting it at those rates, but because supply is also down if they're going to use supply chain economic theory, whatever. Um, anyways, we can talk about this for hours. I'm super fascinated by it. Maximilian, oh. thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry to kind of like add that at the end. I was just thinking. 
No, I mean, I think I think it's a a really important point. I don't know necessarily if this is true, but I would bet money that the plant that your mother is referring to was owned by Viatrice, which I uh, covered on the Working People podcast. And I had I was basing that off a report that the brilliant Laura Flanders did um, at the about the closing of a Viatrice plant in Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, in order to move operations to India. And this was like closing one of the largest generic drug uh, producing facilities that had provided generations of good high paying jobs to people in West Virginia. They also are closing plants in Puerto Rico. and so what this is going to do is it's going to further kind of take jobs away from from those communities who need them. It's going to um, put more power in the hands of this pharmaceutical uh, uh, giant um, to set those sorts of prices, because one of the biggest things that they produce there is that thyroid medication. Yeah. So, yeah, it just kind of really, again, shows, like you said, how all these interconnecting factors and how all these interceding sort of crises, whether that be the climate change or COVID-19, all of that compounds to squeeze working people to to disempower us to leave the profit-seeking prerogatives of the capitalist class to be the main thing that our society is built to protect. Um, and it's just not working for us. We can't keep going down this road uh, because that way lies kind of a disaster. <laughs> anyway, like you said, we could talk about this for ages yeah. and I really appreciate you having me on. <laughs> Thank you, Maximilian. Oh, I have like five more thoughts on top of this. I just listened to a podcast on, on how these plants are operating in India and how the pharmaceuticals are not, they, they're not the oversight's very weak. And so there's a lot of weak products being, we could talk about this forever. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks you for just gonna have me. to come back on. We'll just have to have like a longer conversation. I'm Done. down. Anytime. Right. Thanks so Anyways. much. We'll see you next time. All right. Speaking of products, uh, it, it really does matter when you have a product that's local uh, and won't, you know, and is 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 owned by uh, the workers because, of course, I'm talking about Sunset Lake CBD. You guys know what I'm talking about. Sunset Lake CBD is not just a local company, meaning it's from a small farm in Vermont. They actually took a Ben and Jerry's farm in Vermont and uh, diversified it and turned it into a hemp farm, but. It is a company that is owned by the majority of its workers, and their minimum wage is at $15 an hour. And they support the progressive media universe, knowing that it is very hard for progressive media to get up and running, to uh, build their shows out because they're not part of the the system of capital. That's what it means when you have companies like Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned company, a worker-owned company, and they're producing products that are consistent and won't just, you know, evacuate and go to another country because the shareholders say that there's more money to be made there and the workers can pay the workers cheaper and there's less government oversight. No, no, no. That's not what, what's happening with Sunset Lake CBD. They're a quality product and you can tell. I can tell because I've had other CBD and I don't like it. I was not a fan of CBD. I thought it was a little bit of a gimmick. Then I tried Sunset Lake CBD and I had a full night's sleep, which like I hadn't had in years. That's what happened when I took the gummies, when I have the tinctures, which I have like every night, when I put the cream on my like eczema and my rashes, <laughs> it's too much information. Um, it makes a big difference. They produce a, a quality product that like my family members buy, my aunts, my uncles now are into it. I have friends who are into Sunset Lake CBD. They love all the products. 
Uh, Bijou the dog is into Sunset Lake CBD, the dog biscuits. Bijou's got a lot of, speaking of COVID, a lot of anxiety, calms him down. He's a little poodle mix. Sometimes poodle mixes get a little uh, attached to their owners. And when they've been with their owners during the pandemic and the lockdown, and suddenly the owner is like going out, taking a drive, going to the grocery store. Um, Bijou needs to calm down. He needs to understand that, you know, we, we haven't left him forever. We will be back. And that is why CBD makes a huge difference in his life too. Um, I love it. You guys know it. We talk about it every week, but you too, if you have not tried it yet, you can get a discount right now. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com, you will get 20% off of your entire order. If you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi. Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. It is the panel part of the day, as you guys all know. Uh, Jordan Zachran is back. He's media producer with the More Perfect Union and runs the Progressive Every Progressives Everywhere newsletter, uh, which spotlights spotlights progressive candidates, campaigns, and causes. And Natalie Sure is here, writer and researcher, and a columnist at the New Republic. Oh boy, what a day! Uh, sure y'all woke up to the news that Roe v. Wade is kind of sort of not really a law anymore um, in some states coming to a state near you. Uh, let's let's play this this clip um, on MSNBC about this Texas abortion law. Uh, this is a, a clip on MSNBC from legal analyst Barb McQuaid uh, basically discussing how this law works. That is what makes this law so diabolical, I think, for two reasons. I mean, number one, because it's not involving state action of bringing criminal actions against people, doctors who perform abortions, it is incentivizing bounty hunters to go out and find people who are performing abortions so they can collect their reward. That alone, I think, is going to create a really dangerous scenario. All right. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to go over with this, this uh, decision. Uh, let's start with you, Natalie. I mean, I think the first part about this that really confuses me is... This is based on a heartbeat. This is this is sort of their premise, but it seems like the science is really murky on that. Um, and now they're she's saying the legal analyst is saying that they're going to be their bounty hunters or whatever you want to call them are going to be out patrolling. <laughs> yeah. So my understanding of the law is that it was designed specifically to circumvent Roe versus Wade, uh, which says that no state may. Uh, legally uh, ban abortion for the first um, trimester or, you know, however long it happens to be. And what this law does is instead of the state making it illegal, uh, the state basically deputizes individual vigilantes saying that any resident of the state can sue any a better of abortion. So not the patient themselves, uh, but you know their partners, their abortion providers, anyone who works at a clinic, anyone who so much as drives them to their appointment. Uh, those people are all eligible to be sued for uh, something around $10,000. I don't, uh, I think that might be uh, a minimum. Uh, they might be able to collect more. Uh, and so what that basically does is um, pretty much nullifies anyone's ability to actually get an abortion. Uh, any providers who are actually trying to provide health care for their patients will be just 
bogged down with legal harassment, have their coffers drained by these payouts. Uh, and so they've essentially found a way to make it illegal without uh, running afoul of the literal letter of Roe versus Wade. Uh, and the Supreme Court had until uh midnight to basically uh, step in and block it. And they did not do that. So as of today, people are being turned away from abortion clinics. People are uh, unable to access care. And I think it's important to note that this is overwhelmingly affecting poor people. Um, Rich people who need abortions are still going to be able to cross state lines. It's inconvenient, uh, but they're going to be able to do it. The ones who are going to find themselves in truly dire straits are the most vulnerable people uh, who are going to see their autonomy frighteningly curtailed by this. I mean, the other aspect of this is is infuriating to me is, you know, we just came out of this election, um, uh, the presidential election, in which uh, so much emphasis was put on Texas, Texas being a state that probably arguably has been more blue for a while. Um, But, you know, there's a point where, even if you do know organizing, demographics will catch up and at least with the popular vote when it comes to statewide elections. Um, But you have, of course, a legislature that is quite conservative, um, quite crazy conservative. You have appointed justices, new judges that will be maybe potentially overseeing many of these cases if they're presented, if if lawsuits do go forward, in which they won't dismiss them because of, I mean, in a normal world, if some kook decides, vigilante decides to sue an abortion provider based on what? I mean, that's the other question. It's like, were you in the hospital room with this person? Were you in the room with this? You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, oh, is that a HIPAA violation? I'm sorry. How did you discover this information that this person was seeking an abortion when they just went into a Planned Parenthood to get a breast exam, to get birth control, to get an abortion? How do you know? I mean, any reasonable judge, sane judge, that did not have an agenda would would question probably some of these things. But the ecosystem, the 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 structures are set up by these extreme right wing Republicans who have a clear agenda. And and I can't help but go back and think to myself, where have the Democrats been? Jordan, I mean, you're covering like this is happening everywhere. There's civil rights, uh, Roe v. Wade. You know, they have annihilated us. Yeah. I mean, I guess the first question I have is for, for quickly on this thing, Natalie, uh, they don't technically outlaw it after six weeks, I guess. But why would you be allowed to sue someone for something that's legal? What is where is that? How does that come in? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the exact yeah. um, writing of the law, but my understanding is that they are able to like they basically have standing to sue for. I don't know if it's emotional damages or what it is yeah. that uh, that empowers individual vigilantes, but they are able to sue after six weeks. So it's not not technically saying it's illegal, but it's saying that it's something that uh, you know affects some random person to such an extent yeah. that they do have standing to sue. But, uh, but on which, that point, you have. I mean, that's where a case would get dismissed in a normal world. What evidence? Right. Where, what evidence are you providing? Where are you getting this evidence? Were you in the doctor's room with them? It was it somebody you came to afterwards to say, "I got an abortion." I mean, that's I think ultimately like the the how did this get through the Supreme Court? I mean, yes, these these justices have an agenda and they're there to serve a purpose, but this is this is like 
you lose your law license for this if you represented this person. I mean, the Supreme Court also just overturned, uh, you know, the the immigration, you know, uh, the, the fact that Biden didn't want to send people back to Mexico immediately. They overturned that, uh, even though they gave executive privilege to Trump on that. They just kind of reversed that. They reversed the housing moratorium for no particular reason. I mean, these are not, you know, when we talk about conservative, I, I don't think they're ever principled, but certainly not now. It's certainly not. Uh, they want conservative outcomes, not conservative readings of the law. So, I mean, I think like that's all out the window. This idea that you know people are saying, "Oh, Brett Kavanaugh, he's pretty, he's pretty, pretty moderate." Actually, he had a, he had a decent session last time, and they're just you know waiting to pick their spots. But in terms of politics, I mean, you know, I, I did an interview and I was writing my newsletter last weekend with Mondaire Jones, the representative uh, here in New York, and he said basically, you know, the, the issue of the filibuster is not the fact that uh, people are afraid of Senate comedy; they're not afraid of losing the tradition. It's that. They don't want to have to vote on tough things. They don't want to have progressive policy go through. I mean, you see the two people behind me here uh, and talking about how they're going to keep the filibuster going. They they don't care, you know. And we're seeing the way that uh, Democrats uh, in the House, uh, you know, Josh Gottheimer, his gang, ghouls, they they you know tried to sabotage the reconciliation bill. They still may do it. You know, we seeing Washington Post reported today just a huge number of lobbyists descending on Washington to try and destroy the reconciliation bill. I mean, Democrats, they have power at the, you know, every part of the national government. They could right now end the end the filibuster. They could expand voting rights. They could expand the Supreme Court. They could do it by like lunchtime. Well, maybe it depends if you're on the West Coast, but they could do it, you know, within the next few days. That stuff could be easily done. Uh, the bills have been written. Mondor Jones, Jerry Nadler, uh, you know, Ed Markey, all these people have already written these bills. These things could happen. They are just afraid uh, to I, lose not their to that Joe Biden can, for so many things, just sign it. Yes. Literally, whether it's 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 student student debt relief, so many others, more than what he's already signed. He has the executive power to do so. This, it's like the shtick is up. They, like everyone knows what's going on. This is what they want, you know. And you still see on on the internet people saying, "Well, you know, like they, they can't wait. They need moderates in the caucus. They need moderates." Well, look, Kirsten uh, Kirsten Cinema. There was a poll that came out yesterday. 60% of voters in Arizona, and like both parties, independents all together, they said they would rather see voting rights being protected, even if it didn't include Republicans in a bipartisan bill. They would rather see that. There's no excuse other than them not caring. And it gets down to it, you know, for too long, Dem- people have rallied behind Democrats. Oh, they're the good guys, they're the good guys, they're fighting for us. You know, Chuck Schumer can put out a statement, Nancy Pelosi can put out a statement, oh, we're gonna fight for abortion rights, we're gonna fight for voting rights. But at the end of the day, you, know, you judge people by what they do, and Democrats have completely abandoned everyone. And you know, personally, I, I am desperate to see them expand the, you know, expand the Supreme Court to protect voting rights. But if they get wiped out, like they're going to deserve it, and then we're going to be, you know, back to square one. But I don't know. I, I want to talk about this expanding the Supreme Court thing for a while because I do think I, I understand. I understand what it would do historically. This isn't a question about what if, if it's a good thing or bad thing in this moment. It's a question of. This is a reactionary thing to, frankly, the other work that the Democrats haven't done, which is they're completely, there's no operation. It's not, it's an empty building. There's nothing happening. You can't win, you can't, you can't win if you don't exist. They don't exist. That's ultimately, they hand out like $10,000 grants to like Texas Democratic Party. They're like, here. Go figure it out. Yeah. Go I, figure out uh, how to win back that legislation. For a, a couple weekends. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's exactly. the thing is they would much rather be in opposition, I think. You know, be the ones. For, I'm surprised. I think it's only because this happened on, you know, on the first of the month because there was a, so many fundraising emails that went out yesterday in the month. This is like, in a way, a boon to Democrats. The amount of money, if you recall, how much money they took in with Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she passed uh, last, last fall. 
it was setting records on Act Blue. You know, they were setting records. And, you know, not that they didn't try to win elections, but, you know, that was the goal. That was raising that money was the goal. And so until that, you know, until honestly, until people stop giving money to these hacks, you know, until they stop well, donating to these people. I don't even agree with that. They're raising more money than ever. The Democratic Party is raising more money than ever, but it's not going to organizing. Well, I mean, that's I mean, what I'm saying it. is that until people stop donating to bad actors, until they stop rewarding to, people. Yeah. Until, well, you know then, what they need to do? They need to demand that the Democratic Party be transparent and have like basic accountability. I, I'm like a broken record on this. I'm even sick of myself talking about it. But the bottom line is, you know, I don't know, have a transparent budget. Don't make sure, like there is an entity of people that are voting that have been elected. Yep. And like they, there's there's a committee above them that's been appointed that basically nulls out anything that they've decided. And that committee that's been the rules committee is all consultants that are making money off of these big entities. Like it's, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And until people start to actually demand that, I mean, the problem is, is that there, there was a brief moment, there was enough pressure and then they just delayed votes and delayed votes. And now nobody cares and reporters don't care. And, and that's how it happens. But expanding the Supreme court, it's not going to happen. Policy is entirely buried in, uh, when it comes to way reporters work, right? They, they, the status quo is what they, you know, when I talk about reporters say national media, I mean, you look at, there was a story in the New York Times, incredible this weekend, you know, what happened with Florida? What, what went wrong there with COVID? And they're like, the only time they mentioned Ron DeSantis was saying that uh, he opened vaccine clinics and tried to get people vaccinated. There's no interest in consequences or how people use power or policy. And until there's actual consequences for that beyond, you know, like palace intrigue, until there's any interest in that, until people are actually held accountable, None of this is going to change because honestly, people who have been in D.C., they've been making policies, the same policies, the same people for the last 40 years, and they don't care. Nothing's going to change for them. And so I think part of, you know, uh, maybe, you know, Democrats, they don't feel their base, first and foremost. You know, they need to feel their base and they don't. Uh, and so they feel like they can do whatever they want because they're going to get donations whenever this happens. And so, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be the one to stop the spigot of money. But there needs to be, you know, come next year, some serious, serious primary consequences. And honestly, you know, you look at the, the Tea Party, they failed to take back the, the House in 2010, but they sent a message and eventually, you know, things changed there. And look, they're a bunch of horrible people, but Democratic voters are just as, in a way, I mean, you know, they entrusted Democrats and Democrats uh, in the Senate have failed them time and time again. At some point, you got to say, all right, what do we got to do differently here as voters, as activists, as organizers, as anyone involved in anything that's not in the Capitol? Yeah, I think Jordan's right to connect all of this to you know, the idea of primaries. I mean, when I think about, um, you know, Nomaki, you were saying earlier, the thing about uh, how is it that judges are going along with this? Uh, how is it that, um, you know, there's consent for this kind of law? And like, Republicans have been at this for a while. Like, they have definitely been uh, pursuing a legal movement to remake the courts to be amenable to their legislative wish list for years now. And they're really seeing the fruits of those labors. And part of why the Republicans are so ruthlessly effective at implementing a far-right agenda relative to the Democrats is that they are ideologically unified. Um, you know, there is this agreement of that is what they're there to do. And the Democrats are more of a, you know, disparate party of people with different interests. And I think that, you know, when I look at the uh, insurgent left electoral movement, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, AOC et al., I think that one way of looking at those things is that they are basically trying to uh, make the Democratic Party 
more ideologically coherent. Uh, and I think part of, you know, part of the reason that the Democratic Party is so waffling and ineffective is it's because it's ostensibly claiming to be a party for workers, for downtrodden, but also for executives and for the consultant class at the same time. And like, that's going to work in certain situations. And that's still going to be, I think, a better coalition in many cases than the that the Republican Party has cultivated their ideology. The interest in removing the filibuster is something that is going to run afoul of the interests of uh, the people who are currently in power in the party. And we need to stop we need to stop that situation and remake uh, you know how the party is constituted. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I think part of the problem is that, like like I said, they don't fear their voters. And I guess the difference here, and fingers crossed, I don't know, I have no faith in anything anymore, is that this is not, you know, about affordable housing. This is not about something that threatens rich people. I mean, rich folks love donating to, you know, abortion uh, funds, Planned Parenthood, all these things. These are like social issues. And um, I personally, like, it sh- there shouldn't be a distinction. You know, I think it should be all connected. I mean, you know, abortion is certainly like a issue for low income women more than anyone else. Like it should not be, these all things are all interconnected, but people who don't see it that way, or, you know, haven't thought that much about it in the same way, you know, like, uh, you know, gay rights really took off in the mid aughts up until, you know, Obama legalized gay marriage. And, uh, you know, I think that probably, you know, I mean, these things, obviously it's social issues that really drive a lot of these rich donors. And so I wonder if, um, you know, there is going to be some kind of pressure, uh, that there hasn't been before, from certain parts of the party, from certain donors to really make a change here. And I don't know if it's going to be, they might say, hey, look, uh, if you get rid of the filibuster, we might have to you know, be forced to raise your taxes. I don't know if they care that much. But, uh, you know, it, I do think that there's going to be some, I mean, hopefully there's going to be some extra, de- I don't depend on rich people. I don't think like, oh, they're going to come save us. But now they've like pissed off people who generally don't care about working class people, about, you know, about the downtrodden, like Natalie said, about the four, about the four uh, people who, you know, love charter schools they piss them off too mm-hmm. uh and so maybe that possibly i don't know again i don't have it, any hope but this this kind of reminds me of a scenario um in new york when right after trump got elected people started paying attention to local politics again and they were like wait wait wait, what like the the normie democratic voters and even many progressives were like wait the the, the senate in new york is elected democrat but wait there's eight senators who are holding up like codifying Roe v. Wade? Why are we debating this? What is going on? This is New York State. They're they're holding up a slew of other uh, very, you know, normy Democratic platform items. And how are we getting with? And people started to get more educated about it. And so you saw this coalition of, you know, Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialists, and like Amy Siskind, <laughs> a, a former John McCain supporting, you know, now Democrat who supported Hillary and. And that was the kind of coalition that was needed. Um, and it was very granular. But ultimately, these fights are granular. I mean, that's what the Republicans have been so good at doing over the many decades they've been doing this at the same time as as Democrats have just been like, you know, on the Democratic presidential money-making machine train, whatever that is. There's no incentive. Um, there's no incentive for Democrats yeah. to do the right thing other than their own personal conscience, conscience, of course. consciences, you know, and uh, so because so many Democrat lawmakers are rich, they come from rich families, they've made a lot of money. So the pol- only policies they're going to pass are going to probably hurt them financially, you know, and so there's no incentive for them personally. Uh, there's no incentive for the lobbyists that come after them to want to pass good things. And so 
you know, unfortunately, Republicans, their incentives align entirely with their donors and they don't care, either don't care about abortion or they you know, are just awful, awful people on that issue, too. And so when there's no incentives for Democrats because they're so dominated by lobbyists because they worry about their lobbying careers, look at you mentioned Heidi Heitkamp, you know, you know, Heidi Heitkamp, she was a decent Democrat and then she decided to you know, go work for, uh, you know, people who are trying to stave off capital gains increases on uh, step up and step up investments, basically. So if you own a stock, if you have an investment in something, if you die, it gets passed tax-free to your heirs. Uh, there is no real incentive to fight for progressive issues beyond like being a good person, which unfortunately in this country does not get you very far. Um, on that note, there's, uh, let's talk about the eviction moratorium just briefly. I'm sorry. I'm just so much great news. I warned the audience at the top of the show. I was like, it's a really bad day, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one nice thing I said was happy September. And then we moved on from there. Um, unless is there anything else you guys want to talk about in terms of, of actually, you know what, before we go to eviction moratorium, I want to, let's put up this tweet from Malika Jabali. She's um, a friend of the show. I hate to, to regurgitate this, but since we are talking about organizing, uh, I do want to bring this up because I almost felt like this was like on cue. Um, do you have that tweet from, from Malika? All right. So, um, Jill Filipovic, I believe that's how you say her name. She's she's like one of these people you know on Twitter, and then you're like, have I ever had to say her name before? Uh, she had originally tweeted about um, earlier in the day, good work, everyone who voted for Trump or Jill Stein in 2016 or didn't vote or undermined Clinton from the left because the Supreme Court doesn't really matter and it'll be fine. Abortion vigilantes in Texas, thank you for your support. Of course, Malika Jabali, who does a lot of work on this, uh, said there were almost as many people who were non-voters in 2016 after voting for Obama in 2012 as there were those who swung from Obama to Trump. Those non-voters were disproportionately lower income and people of color. Instead of this constant blame game, maybe we should try to ask them. And she, uh, you know, quoted some text there. Um, I, you know, I wanted to bring this up because, you know, we have to also keep in mind here that the margins in 2020 between Trump and and Biden were smaller in those same states than they were in 2016. So this tactic's not working. Uh, nothing seems to be working. <sighs> I mean, this is this is like the song that never ends. And, and I, I'm bringing it up because like, this is somebody who's in our age demo. This isn't somebody who is has been completely brainwashed by neoliberalism over the last 40 years, doesn't know another way. This is somebody who is part of our genre. Because I sit there at the end of the day and I say, okay, well, time is on our side if climate change doesn't kill us first. At least like we'll have more progressives being elected locally and nationally. And the narrative will start to shift and power will, you know, they'll, they'll have no choice but to surrender a little bit here and there. Um, but then I read things like this. Natalie, I'll go to you. What were your thoughts on, on this moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that Green Party third party voters will ever be uh, a decent way to analyze an electoral problem. Um, you know, they obsessively cling to the idea of Jill Stein or Ralph Nader before um, without really considering the degree to which I think they make less of a difference than people think if they hadn't run. Uh, I don't think that either would have affected the outcome. Um, you know, a lot of the arguments really hinge on the idea that every single Green Party voter would be a Democratic voter. And it's really like a stranger crew than that. 
Uh, there are people who would leave things blank or vote for Republicans. I mean, it's really like not an easy cohort to understand. Uh, there are millions of non-voters. And, you know, at the end of the day, there will always be quirky things like this. You're not going to get rid of third parties. You're not going to get rid of the fact that a marginal number of people are going to vote for them. Uh, what you can do is run a good candidate that people like, run a good campaign, get as many votes as you can. Sometimes it'll, you know, end up your way. Sometimes it won't. But anyone who points to third party or third party voters as an explanation, particularly given the fact like, okay, what's the plan? Just like scream at people about it forever. Um, I, I just think it's a completely useless line of thinking and discussion that will obfuscate far more than it elucidates. And Malika's right. There's a lot more relevant uh, data points to look at why voters behave the way that they do. Uh, I think, you know, people, uh, people want something to be mad at. People want something very direct to cling to and have a meltdown over. And I kind of get that, but gosh, darn it, it is useless. But I also think it's very intentional and, and, it's a pull away from the actual the conversation we just had for the last 15 minutes, which was why are we not winning? Why are we losing when the numbers are on our side and, and there's so much more here? And it, it, it can't be about a small minority um, of people, like a small chunk of people that that potentially could have voted Democrat. But we're going to be caught in these arguments more and more. And, you know, as much as we hate to ignore to, to, to fight with these people online, we have to correct the record. And she has a very large audience, not just on Twitter. Obviously, she has a large audience when she publishes a piece that mm. determines talk show conversations, whether it's ours or MSNBC. And I mean, it does make a difference. They're setting the narrative, Jordan. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think for, for I think the problem is people who say those narratives, who give those narratives, they feel comfortable with the way politics are. The way that things are, like at that moment, like they felt okay in 2016. They said, "Oh yeah, we can continue what's happening." They don't ask why didn't people want to vote for Democrats again? What made them go vote for a third party? They actively rejected the two-party system that created this mess. They said, "I do not trust government. I do not trust the people that are in this government. I want something very, very, very different, even if it's just a protest." So they knew that you know Green Party or Jill Stein, whomever, weren't going to win, but they wanted to say. You know, I don't know, again, if they're right or left, they said, this system doesn't work for me. These people don't work for me. It's all screwed, all screwed up. I'd rather protest. I'd rather go say, like, fuck it, than uh, actually, you know, participate in this system. That's what a third party vote is right now. Uh, you know, I'm not on the local level, but on the national level, for sure. And so instead of asking, like, huh, why are people upset? Why aren't people voting for us? Why aren't uh, voting for the, you know, people I, I support? Why aren't people, you know, uh, turning out or being energetic or, you know, why aren't they, you know, going, uh, turning out mass numbers for Gavin Newsom in the, in the recall election, even though Democrats haven't done anything? Don't shame them. Like, give them something to vote for. I've been saying this for years. And like, all right, so if you look at even Biden's numbers, uh, I don't get off base, but you look at Biden's numbers uh, once the stimulus passed, great. It was like six, almost 60% approval in such a polarized country, right? And now, the stimulus uh, has worn off. People have spent it. Unemployment benefits have worn off in half the states. Republicans pulled them, but they're going to be over in the next couple of days anyways uh, for the rest of the country. Democrats haven't passed literally anything useful. Nothing has happened other than like, you know, some good stuff in FTC and, and NLRB, but no one's looking at that. And, you know, you're not, if, you, if you're like working at your average job, you're not paying attention. Like I 
barely paid attention until I started doing this for a living. Uh, it, it, um, you can't just say, oh, we're going to do this. I mean, you know, President Biden and DSCC just came up with a statement saying, this attack on women's health care is a powerful reminder of the stakes in next year's election. Why we must defend a Democratic Senate majority with the power to confirm or reject Supreme Court justices. They can do that now. They can make differences in people's lives, give them something to vote for. I bet you if they passed a big reconciliation package that gave, uh, made permanent the ch- I hate the term child tax care credit, call it a, like a kid stimulus or something, family, family stimmy check, I don't know. But that stuff would make a difference, you know? But instead, you know, it, by, you know, by giving people victories, why do you think people went to Trump? It's because they felt like, I mean, he's a huge loser, but he projects as a big winner, right? He projects as a fighter, and that's what Republicans are doing. They're pretending that, you know, as much as they're like aggrieved and they've always been aggrieved, they're now like fighters and saying, we're going to take it to you. We're going to run over you with our car. We're going to drive you off the road. Uh, it's insane. It's horrible. But like it gets people pumped up and Democrats like, you know, uh, folks who are tweeting about it, they just want to shame people into voting for people who don't do anything for them. I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I immediately thought of this next thing I wanted to show you, which was um, Jen Psaki was on stage talking about the eviction moratorium. Can we play this clip really quick? Because I think it relates exactly to what you're saying. The last update I wanted to provide to all of you is that as part of our all uh, across government effort approach to preventing evictions, today Attorney General Merrick Garland is calling on the entire legal community to take immediate action to help prevent unnecessary evictions during this public health emergency. The Attorney General's call to action asks major law firms, law school students, and individual lawyers to work with courts, legal service providers, and nonprofits through pro bono services to ensure access to justice for vulnerable tenants. So far, over 40 major law school deans, including from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, Howard, UCLA, and more, have already committed their students in law clinics to help prevent evictions. And presidents of several major legal organizations, including the Legal Services Corp, Corporation, the American Bar Association, and the National Housing Law Project have joined the commitment to immediate action. And on Thursday, we will join a nationwide emergency rental system program training held by the Association of Pro Bono Counsel and Law Firm uh, Anti-Racism Alliance. Does anybody, um, is there a billionaire who wants to start a nonprofit to work on this? You'll get some tax breaks too while you're at it. It's everybody else's job, but theirs. This is a perfect example. I mean, I I watched this, I, I like fell off of my chair. Natalie, yeah, please. Go ahead. Just jump in. Just please. Yeah, like <laughs> if only we if only we knew some powerful people. <laughs> that would help. Yeah, those are the Harvard deans. They used to work in government and now they've just retired and they're like, you know, <laughs> presidents of law schools. I honestly ahead, don't want to support any candidates that have not had to worry about paying rent in the last like 15 years. I do not want to support any candidate that is not like oh no, I lose my job. What happens to my mortgage? I do not want to support any candidate. It's not like, you know what? I may have to give up my second vacation home. That is not the kind of candidate I want because, well, you know, it, it's important to have young candidates. I think it's important to have young lawmakers as well because they've experienced a dystopia that I don't think a lot of people who've been in Washington for the last 40 years have experienced. I don't think anyone that's under 70 years old cares what a Harvard dean says about housing. You know, I, I don't think anyone cares at all. And I don't know that Democrats even care, but it's a nice game of dress up, I guess. But until we have, uh, you know, candidates and we have legislators and senators and whatnot who like had to worry about student debt, who are like trying to decide, all right, should I uh, should I pay during this uh, moratorium or should I try should I try and pay it off or should I, you know, like make sure that if I go unemployed or if I go freelance and I get hit with taxes, then I'll have some enough to eat. That's the kind of people we need running this country because otherwise, why would they expect people to vote for them if they don't know what they go through? You know, it's so interesting you say that. I, I I was talking about this yesterday with somebody. When I when I ran for office, there were like 
17 candidates in the race. Um, and on one of the debate stages, there were like, I think 11 or 13, I can't remember. And everybody on that debate stage, except for maybe myself and another person had served in office. The other person was, um, you know, at a law firm, she was a, a lawyer at a law firm. And, uh, and they asked who rented. I was the only candidate who I could, I it literally, they're city council members. I could not believe in New York city, which has, if not the most diverse and now majority female held city council, that everybody on that stage was a homeowner in New York City. And it reminded me of this conversation that happened with the mayors when they asked the mayors, what is the average price of a home? And none of the mayoral candidates like were anywhere near what the average price of a home in Brooklyn was. And I'm like, oh, ask them about rent. I'm, I'm really curious about that because majority of the city council members are homeowners in New York City. So I really think it's a much, much, much deeper issue than we're even aware of, even with this, this with progressive young people running. I'm very curious, like you have to do your financial disclosures. How many of these people, all of them had cars, by the way. I was the only person who didn't have a car also. What? <laughs> I was like, like, what land am I living in? And who are the people I know? It's like we're like, it's as if you, would you go to a doctor that has never felt pain? Who doesn't know what it's like to feel sick or feel pain? Because that's what it's like right now. That's what our government is right now. People. Yes, that's called going to an OBGYN. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> yeah, to being yeah. a woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, or maybe like half of a dentist I've gone to, but um, it's, you know, you're, you're electing people that don't care because they've never experienced it. Or if they have, they're like horrible people. And I think people have no sense of how big this is. This is much, much bigger than just a, a millionaire uh, uh, federal government, millionaire and billionaire. I think it's, it's, it's institutional as long as we have campaigns that are are based on how much money that you have to raise to get attention. And even it even happens on the progressive side. Let's not bullshit ourselves. Like we all know very well, like there are a lot of progressive organizations who have a great way of making money off of these progressive organ campaigns. We have to present, prevent ourselves from becoming what the neoliberals were. Or, or they'll are. just back candidates that they know can make money. Exactly. That's it. Win. Yeah. Because, you know, it's matching well, funds. At least, and... at least New York has that system where you get a certain number of public funding uh, if you are running for something. Yeah, but that incentivizes um, organizations to to push for candidates that can raise that money. I, having done it, it's not easy. Like, you'll see, sure. like, bartering. It's it's. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's not perfect. It's very, very flawed. Very flawed. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. But I think that, you know, the idea that not only at the federal level, uh, someone running for office doesn't get any public support or assistance. Um, you know, New York has that and they still mm -hmm. have the outcomes that they do electorally. Um, it's, it's a completely depressingly flawed system. All right, Natalie Shore, Jordan Zacharin, thank you so much for joining us. Producer Brad, thank you very much for always being back there behind screen working with us. And everybody else, we will see you on Friday for Fem Friday. We have a great show on Fem Friday. You gotta check it out. I know you guys watched on last Friday and saw our big debate. We're gonna do another one this uh, Friday. Big teaser there. Uh, so go check it out. And if you haven't already, go check out the committee program, which aired yesterday um, on the channel with Arun Chadri. All right, we will see you next or on Friday, excuse me, we'll see you on Friday. Stay in solidarity. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. continues. The No Mickey Show. Show.